Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This netcast is part of a series from the Fall 2009 Faith and Globalization Seminar. For more on the initiative, visit faithandglobalization.yale.edu. So, David, we come to the end of our uh, romp through the Gospel of Luke, <laughs> and uh, we've um, spoken most recently about um, uh, the Last Supper and about Jesus' uh, predictions of end-time things, and got the sense that um, uh, the end time was beginning somehow yes. in the, the yes. life of the church. Um, and here we come to the, the, the Passion and Resurrection. And at this point, um, uh, Luke overlaps a good deal with uh, Matthew and Mark, but there are some really distinctive features to, to both of these uh, sets of stories. Let's begin with the Passion. All and, right. Uh, All tell right. us what, um, what's distinctive about the way in which Luke Well, let's, let's the... start with the very end of the story, uh, of the Passion story, which is where Jesus says the last words he says uh, before his death. And in both Matthew and Mark, the last words he says before his death are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and in Luke's gospel, he says instead, into your hands I commit my spirit. And um, we've seen how important spirit is in Luke's gospel as the driving force that, that makes Jesus' ministry possible and will make church possible. And I think we're bound to hear echoes of that. And it's also the case, as I suggested one or two of our sessions before, that I think in important ways, uh, Jesus while he is a great prophet and while he is Messiah or on his way to being Messiah, um, he's also a kind of exemplary, faithful person. And that when he says, into your hands I commit my spirit, he does what I think, he becomes an example story in a way. He does what I think Luke thinks faithful people are supposed to do at the time of our death, even our martyrdom, which is to commend our spirits to the God who gave us to them in the first place. And, mm -hmm. and I see that, and then I'm glad to see where you go from there. Uh, I see that particularly in the way the story is echoed in the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, who becomes the first explicit Christian martyr and says something very like it, Lord Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit, uh, which seems to me like a kind of Christocentric echo of exactly what Jesus says, and another example story. Mm -hmm. Do you think uh, Luke is reacting to the way in which uh, Mark tells the story? I do. I think, I think Mark's story, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, which when we do our discussion of Mark, we'll have a long discussion on, uh, has been problematic for Christians from the start. It seems like a terrible thing to be Jesus' last words, even though it's the first line of Psalm 22. It just, it's, you don't want Christ's last words to be a cry of utter desolation. And I think Luke, seeing that, says, can't we make this a little bit more edifying and finds in the example of martyrdom a more edifying thing for Jesus to say. It's possible he had another source. It's possible he was something else. I think he's reading through Mark's text and says, oh, not that. Let's do into your hands I commit my spirit. Are there other things that uh, Luke has Jesus say from the cross? That well, the, 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 the two that come to mind immediately, and then you'll flag some I missed, I'm sure. One is the whole dialogue with the two thieves. That, that that happens only in, in, in Luke's gospel. We have the thieves up there beside him in the other gospels, but in Luke's gospel, there's this little discussion where uh, one thief starts kind of deriding him along with everybody else, and the, the so-called good thief, which has nothing to do with goodness, it has to do with, with penitence and belief, uh, says, aren't you ashamed? Uh, we're under the same condemnation as he, but we justly, great theme, he unjustly, and I think, I think that, the, that the thief, who's very nearly the last human being to interact with Jesus before his death, becomes also a kind of exemplar, a kind of paradigm of the repentant person who, in the light of the cross, recognizes the justice of our condemnation for sin and the injustice, the innocence of Jesus, 
and then prays, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think he does just what John the Baptist has told us we're supposed to do. What Jesus says we're supposed to do, we're supposed to repent. When we repent, God has mercy in Jesus Christ. I tell you this day you'll be with me in paradise. Mm -hmm. and, and the whole Christian story is kind of acted out in three verses. All right. and, no, I think that's uh, very telling. It certainly uh, gives us another indication of Luke's interest in repentance as a major uh, theme throughout the gospel. Absolutely. Uh, what, what about the saying um, uh, that uh, is put on Jesus' lips, at least according to some yeah, witnesses yeah, yeah. in verse 34? Yeah. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. <laughs> yeah, he, um, the, the trick on that, the reason we smile, is that, that some early manuscripts have this text and other early manuscripts do not. And entire careers have been built on asking what's most likely to be the earliest reading. Uh, not mine and not yours careers, <laughs> thank God. But um, I, have a, I have a tricky response to that. Again, it's very much like Stephen. Stephen says of his tormentors, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Um, I don't know how you solve the textual problem. It seems to me it's a marvelous examination of a Lucan theme. That is, if Luke didn't say it, he should have because it fits the kind of claim we've had about Jesus in the prodigal son, in the lost coin, in the lost sheep, in the words he's going to say at the very end of the story, that he is the one who declares forgiveness to the outsiders. Here the outsiders are so far outside, they're his own killers and tormentors. And yet the mercy of God extends far enough even to forgive them. So I preach it <laughs> and hope Jesus said it, or at least hope. Luke wrote it down. I think I agree with you on that one. Uh, there's one other little uh, point that I want to highlight, and that's in verse 47, uh, when the uh, centurion who saw Jesus yes, yes, uh, yes, give yes. up his spirit says something. Uh, you, you said that the, uh, the good thief was uh, one of the last to interact yeah, with Jesus. Yeah, the last, last. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. What do you make of this? Uh, well, it, it's a, the, the Greek is tricky because it says truly this... Well, let me go back to Mark once again. At this, at this point in Mark's gospel... And in a similar context in Matthew's, not exactly, but similar, uh, the centurion says, truly, this was God's son. In, in this gospel, he says, truly, this man was, and then the word is dikaios, which can mean innocent, as at the end of a trial, or can mean just, righteous. Uh, righteous. Mm -hmm. That great theme that goes through much, so much through uh, Paul's writing and maybe occasionally in Luke's as well. Um, at, at, one, at the simplest possible level, let me come back on the Dikaios sooner. No, I'll just do it right now. When the, when the lawyer comes along, what he wants to do is to righteous himself. Mm -hmm. And now Jesus has been righteous. Mm -hmm. um, is this just saying that, like any good martyr, this was an innocent man, like Stephen is an innocent man, and we marvel at the fact that in his innocence he has nonetheless been killed? Or is this somehow, as Paul would say, the righteousness of God? Is this God's right action for us? Uh, in, the, in the act of the cross. I don't know. Yeah, I'd have a slightly different take Go. on that and not uh, see it uh, so much under the, the Pauline light, yeah. um, but under the theme of, uh, of righteousness in Luke. Okay. And righteousness in Luke um, from the, the first chapters on, and would, would have to do a word study yeah, yeah, in order yeah, to show yeah. this, but uh, take my word for it, um, that uh, right, the, the, the term dikaios and dikaiosune in, in Luke has to do with uh, obedience to God. Yeah. And uh, I think the, the uh, centurion is making a Lucan confession here. That this is a truly, the truly obedient tree, one. The truly the obedient, obedient the truly righteous yeah. one. I think innocent is too thin. I think so, it, that's I right. I don't think this is just about yeah. guilt and innocence. So this is one of those places where the NRSV could be improved. Yes, one of three or four at yeah. least. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's turn to the resurrection. Okay. And um, uh, tell us about the distinctive features of the resurrection stories in Luke. Well, I think the, the, 
the appearance stories are somewhat different than they are in the, in the other Gospels, but the most striking feature of the Lucan story is Luke's alone, which is the story of the road to Emmaus. And uh, you'll remember that on that story, two disciples are walking along the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, bemoaning the fact that Christ has been crucified. An unrecognized third joins them, asks them what they've been talking about. They explain what they've been talking about. This unnamed third person begins to explain to them why it was necessary that Jesus should die. They go to the home. They invite him in. They break the bread. And in the breaking of the bread, one, they recognize him. And two, they remember that on the road from Emmaus, he has been opening the, to them the scripture. And as he did so, that their hearts burned within them. And I know it's because I'm a preacher that I think that this is a text that says for the Lucan community, resurrection continues to happen when scripture is faithfully interpreted and where the Lord's Supper is faithfully celebrated. That that, that I'm sure there's a great day coming for Luke, but in many ways for him, first day preaching and celebration of the meal is the messianic banquet, not just foretold, but enacted, lived out, come into being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are certainly different ways in which Christian traditions have thought about the, uh, the Eucharist and what happens yeah. there, uh, all the way from the Catholic real presence and uh, doctrine of transubstantiation to, um, you know, a highly symbolic but right. significant meal in, in other traditions, etc. Uh, but I think for Luke, there, there, there is a kind of real presence. I do too. And it's a real presence in both Scripture and in, in the Eucharistic action. Absolutely. And uh, it's interesting that the dining motif here uh, once again, which is, a, once again which is where it's, it's the place where Jesus has most often reached out mm -hmm. to invite unlikely people to the meal. It's the place which he promises will be the sign of the messianic age that will be joined in a banquet. Um, and now it becomes what church does, not just in remembrance of Christ, but in celebration of Christ's mm -hmm. presence. I mm -hmm. think it's very, very powerful. Mm -hmm. I'm not very Baptist at that point. I don't think we just remember him fondly. Mm -hmm. uh, I think at that point we're promised that he's there. Right. Uh, when the word is preached and the sacrament is celebrated. Say a little bit about the way in which the geographical focus of these stories differs from that in uh, Mark and in Matthew. Yeah. What's going on? Um, in, in Mark and in Matthew, it's very clear that Jesus predicts that he will appear to them in Galilee and does so. Uh, at the end of Mark, we only have the prediction that to go to Galilee, Jesus will be there. Then the odd ending of Mark, which seems to break off mid-sentence, but that's it, folks. In Matthew's Gospel, we not only have the prediction, but Jesus does appear and gives the so-called Great Commission, uh, go into all the world and preach the Gospel. Here, Jesus appears in Jerusalem and promises that the Spirit, that they're to stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit falls upon them. It, we've seen it all along that the Jerusalem, the story starts in Jerusalem, Acts will start in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where the continuity and discontinuity come together, where mm -hmm. Jerusalem is Israel's place and now it becomes the church's place. And so it's both the place of continuation. It's kind of hinge. For it's the, the hinge. Yep. Jerusalem is a hinge. And it's the hinge. It's the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. So it's a, it's a narrative hinge as mm -hmm. well as mm -hmm. a geographical hinge, mm -hmm. don't you think? I yeah, think oh, I think so. Yeah. Two other features I, I want to call attention to. Jesus appears one more time at the end of this chapter yeah. after the yeah. um, appearance of the disciples yeah. on the road to Emmaus. Yeah. And what do you make of that story in the uh, upper room? Uh, well, I think, I think a couple things happen. One is that... Uh, he appears again in their presence, um, that he explains to them in a way as he did to the disciples, um, that everything that's happened to him has been the fulfillment of scripture, that it was all necessary. And then I think a little bit, um, he does what, what Matthew does in the Great Commission. 
he sends them out, telling them what they're going to have to uh, what they're going to have to preach. And what they're going to have to preach are the two great Lucan themes: repentance, forgiveness of sins. So, they 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 are supposed to preach what the thief has just enacted: repentance and forgiveness of sins. What John said they were going to have to do, and the mercy that's been declared to him from the beginning. So now, in some ways, the church takes on the job and carries it over. Right, so you have the declaration of those uh, important gospel themes for yep, Luke absolutely. and also the reference to the hinge, right? And the reference uh, to the all hinge of this is in to Jerusalem. be proclaimed in, the na in his name yep. to all nations yep. beginning, from Jerusalem, beginning from Jerusalem, and you are to be witnesses yep. of these things. Yep. Uh, just before that, though, Jesus um, uh, presents himself to his disciples and um, uh, tells them to touch his hands yeah, and his yeah, feet yeah. and yeah. to see that he has real, real flesh hands, and real bones. Feet. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And he asks for something to eat. He right? does, because... because he loves to eat. He does. And he lives, right? This is, yeah. this is the eating text, uh, the eating gospel. And because I think he, he, he's, Luke is doing what all the gospels do in somewhat different ways, and which is very complicated for all of us. He wants to make clear this is not a ghost. This is not an apparition. That resurrection is something that happens to Jesus, not just in the minds of the disciples. And the way you do that is you show the wounds, or you touch the hands, or you eat a meal. This is... This is the final act in the mission of Jesus, which is the transition of the life of the church, and it's really Jesus, not mm -hmm. just the memory of Jesus. It's interesting, the balance between the kind of highly symbolic story of uh, the road to Emmaus. It is. And then and the this kind of insistence <laughs> on the, yeah. uh, the physical yeah. character yeah. of the resurrection. Yeah. Uh, one last uh, note, um, the very end of the gospel is an account of the ascension of Jesus, yeah. uh, which is a little different from the account of the ascension that we get in the beginning in Acts, of Acts. Exactly. What do we make of that difference? I have no idea. What do you make of that difference? Um, <laughs> very good question. Uh, but I think we have another hinge here. Okay. And I think the fact that Luke tells the same story Twice. in two different forms yeah. uh, is analogous to what's going on uh, in the juxtaposition of the symbolism and the physical reality of the okay. resurrection. That for Luke, there are always uh, there's always more than one way to yeah, look yeah, at anything. Yeah, there are always pairs. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And I think we have the same thing going yeah. on here. Re Ascension is a reality to take place 40 days after the uh, the resurrection yeah. or, or on Resurrection Eve. Immediately, right? Yeah. In any case, uh, Jesus is with God, and He's also through the Eucharist and Scripture with us. With us, mm -hmm. and the Spirit is the bond of that. That's right. Thank you. Yale University, in collaboration with the Tony Blair Faith Foundation, has created the Faith and Globalization Initiative, which examines the profound impact of religious faith in a world where political, economic, and social spheres are increasingly interconnected. These crucial issues of faith and globalization can hopefully, through open discussion and reflection, lead to the kind of reconciliation and peaceful coexistence that life in the 21st century demands.